continuous rainforests on the planet. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning on this Monday. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Richard Harris. Richard, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Arab countries join a coalition to fight ISIS. China's industrial output slows. Sinopec sells a stake in its retail business. And Heineken spurns a takeover offer from SAB Miller. In economic news, investors are encouraged by recent strength in U.S. retail sales. It really affirms that the employment data we saw was more of a fluke rather than a trend. Consumers that don't have jobs don't spend money, and they were spending more money in the month of August. So Diane Swank there from Mesero Financial, and more people seem to be agreeing that interest rates will stay relatively low. From a trading perspective, I would be surprised to see the, uh, the 10-year really get higher than 3% over the next six months. Michael Purvis from Whedon & Company there. He thinks people not in equities won't do well. I think PEs can actually get, you know, north of 20 over the broader term. And that process may happen gradually. That may be a gradual climb up. But equity, people who are not in equities are going to lose. These are among the topics that we'll be discussing with our guests this morning. In our featured segments, we'll have a big look at the U.S. banking sector with top analyst Mike Mayo of CLSA. We'll be looking at the big picture with Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, and our co-host for the Fun in the Sun this morning is, again, Richard Harris, the chief executive officer of Port Shelter Investment Management. We'd like to get you the update on Asian markets uh, now. Uh, The Aussie dollar is down for a sixth consecutive day. New Zealand's currency is near a seven-month low. Copper futures uh, down. We had weak factory and retail sales data in China, so that's hurting a bit. And crude oil is down also with U.S. index futures. By the way, CLSA's annual investors forum gets underway this morning in Wan Chai. So many guests uh, in the forum this week, and we'll have one each morning here on Money for Nothing. The five-day conference will feature some 50 keynote and specialist speakers. Among the uh, interesting draw for traders and Wall Street watchers might be Brad Katsuyama, the protagonist featured in Michael Lewis's Flash Boys, and also Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former governor uh, and Terminator, will be uh, in the forum as well. Okay, let's uh, check in on some of these latest uh, news stories. In China, we saw the weakest industrial output expansion since the global financial crisis. Investment and retail sales growth show that the slowdown in the Chinese economy appears to be deepening. ANZ Bank said that GDP might slip as low as 6.5% in the third quarter. It is a different story in the U.S. in terms of direction. Retail sales up broadly in the month of August. More here from Diane Swank. I think they tell us a couple of things. One, not only were this month's sales pretty good, very good, we also saw upward revisions to the month of July, which had flatlined on the initial um, report. Now they're up 0.3%. So it really affirms that the employment data we saw was more of a fluke rather than a trend. Consumers that don't have jobs don't spend money, and they were spending more money in the month of August. We also saw consumer confidence improve because of employment prospects firming a bit, and I think this is really important. It doesn't mean everything's well, but it does mean that we have seen an improvement in employment and that last month's jobs number was more of a fluke than a trend.
So consumer sentiment was up to a 14-month high in September. If you're producing products going into the U.S., that would uh, that would cheer you a bit. And also retail sales increased not 0.6% last month. Mike McKee from Bloomberg says the data does ease some concerns about soft consumer spending. More people are growing more confident that their incomes are going to be rising in the future. Now, the question has been, why haven't they so far? And that's the $95 trillion question for, or maybe $4 trillion question for Janet Yellen. <laughs> but uh, it does appear that we're starting to see some wage pressure building. If that continues, it can only be good news for the economy. But as Diane points out, we've, we've had job growth. Uh, the question is, why haven't those additional people coming into the labor market, more paychecks, contributed to more spending? And now we're starting to see that maybe. And back to Michael Purvis from Whedon and Company. He says it's a good environment for stocks. I think where we are right now, we're probably in the third or fourth innings of this game, not the eighth innings. Just because we're six years into a strong bull trend doesn't mean it's going to end right now. If Bill Gross is right that rates are going to stay low for a sustained period of time, I think PEs can actually get you know north of 20 over the broader term. And that process may happen gradually. That may be a gradual climb up, but equity people who are not in equities are going to lose. So probably most of you know that a normal baseball game runs nine innings. So if you're only in the third inning instead of the eighth inning, it means you've still got quite a ways to go with the bull run. And he also doesn't think that market interest rates will move up sharply. If you look at a broader range of, you know, 2.5 to 3 percent, for example, that's probably where bonds are going to be traded at. You know, the argument about fair value here is, is can get a little bit academic, given how dominant the Fed has been in interest rate suppression, and there's been a lot of sort of artificial forces at, at, at work there. Right. But from a trading perspective, I would be surprised to see the 10-year uh, the really get higher than 3% over the next six months. But- so again, he's sort of in that Bill Gross camp that rates will stay low for quite a long time. Let's say good morning to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yes, well, it does seem that, um, you know, with this herky-jerky game that we play with analyzing the data, trying to figure out, you know, how much is the U.S. economy recovering, it seems the latest data were pretty good. Yeah, they were. They really were. And I think that uh, Diane Swank and uh, Mike McKee have got that right. The data is pretty encouraging, except for that jobs report. Diane wants to say, well, that was already an anomaly. We'll see. Because I think the stock market, Brian, might be sending us signals that there's a short-term correction in store or perhaps having begun. You know, we were down this past week. We've been at record highs, but it's been pretty flat over the last three weeks. So we shall see. I think the Fed press conference on Wednesday is going to be quite important. It seems like we're pointing towards uh, maybe an adjustment to the statement that has stayed the same for quite a while. Yeah, you're right. It's going to be fun. You know, it, You know, some people say, gosh, language has deteriorated. But look how we pay attention to the words considerable time. That is in the Fed statements from recent FOMC meetings. And the question is, on Wednesday, will Janet Yellen and her colleagues take it out? Meaning, the considerable time, there would be a considerable time after the end of QE in October before interest rates rise. And she herself said in one of her first statements to the press that that probably suggests six months. If she takes that out, 
Maybe rates will go up before six months. I don't know if it's comical or not, but, uh, you know, with the better economic data last week and then the market down a bit, uh, it sort of seems that we're back in this, um, you know, uh, good news is bad news mentality. Uh, but it's actually good news for the economy. Uh, should we um, should we kind of see it that way? I think so, Brian. You know, look. You and I talk a lot about interest rates, and interest rates were closer to 3% at the beginning of the year, and all the predictions were that they would be at 3% at the end. Now, we've seen interest rates go up a bit in the last couple of weeks. They're at 2.61 on the 10-year. But oil prices are down well below $100. The global slowing is clearly a factor, and Europe is flat on its back. So, again, we're pointing to the United States as a kind of... uh, beacon of success along with your part of the world, and we need to have a rapid growth pace here, and I'm not sure we've got it. We're still, as you say, this herky-jerky stage where we really can't detect a strong, discernible, sustainable trend. Richard Harris, the CEO of Port Shelter Investment Management, is with us on the program as well, Barry. Uh, Richard, how do you see the investment climate at the moment? Well, I think uh, all those people are saying that equities might do quite well, might actually do quite well, even though we've got this uh, overhang of of interest rates going up. Um, I can't help thinking, though, that maybe we're in the last round, that we've seen some fantastic rises. You know, if you look at the world index equities since Uh, 09. It's been the second biggest bull market since uh, time began. I think that's going to continue running. um, But maybe in six to nine months, uh, it's going to start looking like the, uh, the last guy in. Why? Uh, just because these markets tend to go up. If you look at the charts, um, uh, you can draw a nice line to where we're going to meet some serious resistance, maybe March, April next year. Now, markets always don't go up in a straight line. There'll be a few wobbles. And I think as interest rate headwinds come in, there'll be a few wobbles there. Um, But I do think equities are probably the place to be for the next six months. So this guy, Whedon, that we played uh, earlier, or rather Michael Purvis from Whedon, was saying that that this is a long wave of of, uh, equities uh, moving Moving, moving higher. And, um, you know, he's he's of the opinion that this could run years and years from here. And looking at, um, you know, how long bonds did well, yields went all the way down. That's a 30 year cycle. And, and uh, stocks didn't do well the past uh, 15 years since 2000. And he thinks that now you're in the early stages of a long wave rise in equities. You don't agree? Well, I think if you do that, you're looking at something that's never really happened before. And hey, maybe this time it's different, which is what we always say. Um, no, it has happened before. No, no, wait a second. I mean, stocks went up from 1982 to 2000. That's an 18-year run. You've, you've got three big bull markets since uh, since the early 80s. You've got one in the 80s, which was the um, uh, the bubble then after Reagan. You've got one in the 90s, which was dot-com. And you've got one in, in 07. Now, all of those have seen slightly higher highs than we've seen before. So what we're now saying is this bull run is going to see a lot higher highs than we've seen before. Now, maybe that's right or maybe it isn't but i my guess is we probably got maybe six months of uh, comfortable rise and then after that we're we're hanging on skyhooks and barry when when you i know you don't focus on markets as much as you do the general economy uh, uh but um you know where do you fit in on this argument uh, do you believe well, I, that i agree Go ahead. i agree very much with what was just said i think that um you know, we, we must be nearing a top. We've had such an extraordinary bull run. And I think the new factor in this 
if this is the third big bull market, then this one has interest rate suppression. We've never had interest rate suppression like this. Every asset class has been driven to, to equities because of the low interest rate environment. It was the only place, given housing collapse, to make money. So what does that imply? We really don't have a roadmap. Okay, let's say good morning to Mike Mayo, CLSA's head of U.S. Bank's research, uh, who perhaps can shed some light on one troubled sector in the U.S. economy. Uh, Mr. Mayo, good morning. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here in Hong Kong. Uh, First, are you excited to take part in this big forum? Oh, my. This is the 21st year for the CLSA conference. There's over 200 companies and over 2,000 people, and the conference started 15 minutes ago, and I have to say the atmosphere is electric. So you've got sort of an electric um, call on City at the moment. Uh, City is a long, long way from where it uh, used to be trading. Uh, and I guess one of the big aspects uh, of your call is that restructuring continues. Uh, walk us through why you like City. Well, first, uh, don't forget my history with Citigroup. We put a sell rating on it back in 2007. The stock's down over 90%. I wrote a book, Exile on Wall Street, two of the 10 chapters, talk about how awful Citigroup is. But with the new CEO two years ago, uh, they've made some progress, not as much as they should, but we think there's more to go. And your, your other two speakers just now talked about interest rate suppression, no roadmap. And I'd add on to that, it's uncertain as far as the revenue growth. So with uncertain revenue growth, we just love a restructuring story such as Citigroup. And we think uh, the stock price can double over the next four years. Uh, they ha- are running off the legacy era assets, that, so that's good. And also, like much of the U.S. banking industry, capital is much higher, liquidity is much higher, and the balance sheet is much cleaner than it had been before. So between expense cuts, efficiency savings, uh, more capital redeployment, um, and runoff of legacy assets, uh, we think Citigroup is going back closer to where it's been historically. And, and here in Hong Kong, here in Asia, the Citigroup brand still is closer to a, a high-quality brand, uh, and they're gaining more respectability. So is that the story? Is that the breakdown for you when you look at all the big banks uh, in North America, is if they get restructuring, if they're actively uh, re- rebuilding their business, uh, that they get a look in? And if they're not, then, you know, then you've got to sell on them. Well, it's not that cut and dry, but certainly it helps to tilt the balance. I mean, this is a very uncertain environment. This is uncharted territory when it comes to the Fed's quantitative easing. The Federal Reserve balance sheet of $4 trillion, and now we're talking about unwinding that. Um, So the good news to the U.S. banks is that the equity-to-asset ratio is at an eight-decade high. We're talking about the U.S. banking industry being cleaner than it's been at any time since before the financial crisis. That's a positive. But the big negative is Revenue growth for U.S. banks is the worst it's been in eight decades. So what you're seeing is the two sides of de-risking. The government regulators are clamping down on the banks, not allowing the banks to take more risk. And that's good as far as the strength of the balance sheet, but it's also bad as it relates to growth. Therefore, we like recommending banks to have an extra earnings lever uh, in the case of Citigroup. Mike, in the old days, uh, rising interest rates were bad for banks because it, it hit their bond portfolios. Is that model now dead? Well, rising rates could be good or bad for banks. Back to the comment 
uncharted territory. We'll see how the banks do once rates go higher. But we have to think that the first 50 to 100 basis points is good across the board. And it's really uh, incredible that interest rate suppression has continued by so much for so long. So at least reversing some of that will be positive for banks. So if rates are 100, 150 basis points higher in the next year and year and a half, that's very manageable. If, however, uh, the Federal Reserve has gotten it wrong and rates go up you know, 400 basis points, then that has the potential to cause dislocations, securities losses, uh, some of the events that you saw back in the second half of 1994. And as a reminder, we haven't had a real interest rate scare, well, since, frankly, 1994 or two decades. Mike, looking at um, things from over here, we keep looking at the bank fines. You know, Bank of America has been hit for $60 billion. City, I think, has been hit for $12 billion itself. Um, how long is this game going to go on for? Well, Western banks have paid fees over $250 billion. And so, you know, banks have paid a price for the problems from the financial crisis. We are definitely in the later stages of the bank fines, but it's certainly not over. There's issues related to, to LIBOR, uh, foreign exchange issues, and, and perhaps, you know, something else. But we're certainly in the later stages uh, especially now that the, the big mortgage settlements are done, but there could still be some tail risk as it relates to you, U.S. You, banks. You were very critical of many banks, uh, so presumably um, you're all for these fines. Well, I think there's a balance. I think um, simply paying fines does not get to the core issues. So in many cases, you're not finding the people, the individuals that were responsible. You're not penalizing the people who own the bank at the time. Uh, and in many cases, you're simply penalizing the current shareholders. Um, so I'm actually not always a big fan of these fines. I think what we need around the fines, what we need around U.S. regulation, is greater transparency. We'd like to see you know, how and why these fines total what they do. And as it relates to bank regulation more generally, we would like to see additional rationale for the capital ratios uh, of the banks and what the regulators are requiring. Okay. We would like to see the breakpoint. So more transparency with the regulation while also holding the bank management more accountable. This is a general interest program, so we won't get too much in the weeds on that, but does it send a message to these banks the next time there's a big crisis, the next time they're asked by the government to come in to absorb a troubled uh, financial institution, they won't do it? Well, that's a risk. You get a phone call late in the evening saying, buy this bank, um, and you said, well, wait a minute, I remember the last financial crisis. We might not do that. And so what you have to be wary of is the unintended consequences of some of the regulations, some of the fines that are taking place today. By all means, penalize the wrongdoers. We wrote about it. We had 10,000 pages of research before the financial crisis talking about the abuses. Now it's after the fact, and sometimes I feel as though those, uh, you know, the, the punishment uh, is sometimes disconnected from the crime. Okay, I just know that you have only a few minutes left. Let's move over to quantitative easing a little bit. Uh, uh, CLSA's uh, chief strategist out here, Chris Wood, uh, has been rather vocal saying that um, ultimately, um, you know, this is financial quackery and it's not going to work. Uh, could I just get a general opinion from you about whether quantitative easing has worked? Well, Chris Wood, as a CLSA strategist, is phenomenal. And one data point I would point to that would partly back up Chris Ford's assertion is that 
typically five years through an economic expansion, loan growth in the U.S. would be six times faster than it's been. So loan growth is still somewhat anemic. So the ability of the banks to facilitate economic growth through loan growth and taking the baton from the Federal Reserve at this point still remains a little uncertain. Is it pretty certain that it's been good for rich people, but not very good for people at the lower end? Uh, There's a lot of debate about that, but certainly part of the unintended consequences, uh, large U.S. banks don't want to make subprime loans. They don't want to go make loans to lower quality borrowers. So again, unintended consequences, uh, more rich people get loans, poor people don't get as much. And, And Mike, would you say that the big drop in U.S. bond yields this year, now we've had a little tick up here, 20 basis points in the past week or so, and that has people worried about rates, but let's face it, the big move in the 10-year um, uh, yield has been from around 303 down to the 230s. Is that investors discounting the end of um, quantitative easing, the whole tapering process, and are we in trouble after the Fed stops? Well, I know you'll be talking to Chris Wood, I think, on your last day, Brian, uh, before you retired. I, I wish you well with that. Oh, you're good. You're good. Go ahead. <laughs> you'll, be talking to, you'll be talking to Chris Wood, and you know, is this an indication that this quantitative easing is not working? Um, I think you'll get an answer from Chris that probably uh, helps to support his thesis. Okay, so... Brian? Yeah, go ahead, Brian, Barry. let me just throw, throw in a uh, layman's uh, observation from uh, at least uh, down the road from the world's financial capital in New York. I think that uh, Liaquat uh, Ahmed, uh, the, the financial historian, has got it exactly right. We need to build monuments to uh, Tim Geithner and to Ben Bernanke. Had we not had QE in 2000, whenever, after the 2008 crisis, I think we would be in deep doo-doo. And thank goodness we had it, because we're still not out of the woods. Mike, you're a pretty technical guy. Do you understand doo-doo? Um, is that a word that is in your uh, business uh, parlance? <laughs> I think we went through a lot of it during the financial crisis. I, I agree. I'm, I'm glad. But don't forget, the banks have a lot more capital now, so those emergency measures probably aren't needed to the same degree today as they were five years ago. And just briefly, fi- final comment from you. Um, uh, do you believe that the American banks, uh, in the way that they have uh, restructured so far, sold businesses and raised capital, that they are in better shape than the European banks? Look, the U.S. banks have raised much capital, increased liquidity. The U.S. banks are clean and took some of the tougher actions by issuing equity. So I think the U.S. banks are a step ahead. Okay. Uh, Thanks very much, Mr. Mayo. We'll let you get back to the conference. All the best this week and uh, be listening to other top CLSA commentators all throughout the week. Mike Mayo, CLSA's head of U.S. Bank's Research Money for Nothing. The show continues. It's 25 minutes after 8. going to check on market action this morning. Uh, in Australia, the ASX 200 down 20 points at 55.11. That's a drop of four-tenths of a percent. The exact same drop in, in Seoul. The Kospi off seven points at 20.33. Japan closed for a holiday, apparently, today. The dollar-yen, 107.31. So that's the dollar a little stronger against the yen. The euro, 1.2956. So the euro seems to have stabilized a bit around the 129 level. We mentioned the Australian dollar and the Kiwi dropping. The Aussie 
dollar now looking uh, close to dropping below 90 cents at 90.11 and the RMB 6.146. Uh, Barry, you're still with us here on, on the you program. It's kind of interesting listening to uh, Mike Mayo there talking about uh, the banking sector. So he puts out a call um, to the upside for City. City was trading about what, 80, 90 percent higher than this uh, when it was at its peak. Um, yeah, it looks like the financial institutions in the U.S., uh, you know, will continue to struggle. Well, I, I hope they're in good condition because given the geopolitical environment in the world, I think they need to be strong. And I think the European banks are very, uh, very weak. Brian, is this, is this the point that I can say to you what a gratifying and amazing experience it's been talking to you these Monday mornings for 15 years, because listeners may or may not know that our conversations are always unscripted. And if I look at my reporting career, I see three big events. One has been the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism, the second, the Internet. But the third, you've been critical in, and that is the rise of China. With this incredibly sophisticated audience you have in Hong Kong, you have guided listeners into the integration of China into the world economy. And I've been lucky to be just a little part of that. So I thank you, Brian, and I wish you the best. Well, that's quite an amazing comment. Thank you very much. Uh, the most amazing part of that is that these unscripted chats, uh, the pressure's all on you. <laughs> you never know what I'm going to ask you, and you always uh, sail through swimmingly well. Um, so I think that uh, the credit certainly goes to you. And I think listeners would probably um, be amazed that over these 15 years that we've had these chats, that uh, I don't think you've missed any. Uh, you, you, you never seem to get sick, and, and you're, always, uh, you, you're always giving up your Sunday night for the listeners in Hong Kong. So that's, that's fantastic. Richard. Yeah, well, uh, uh, it's the last time I'm going to be on the show with you, Brian. You'll be, uh, uh, you'll be gone next time. And uh, I have to say you've uh, really presented something that's been fantastic for Hong Kong, a really powerful business program, and uh, all power to you. Well, I didn't really want to have this discussion this morning, uh, and uh, so let's just move on and finish up with a few minutes here of uh, financial um, analysis and commentary that uh, will actually be of some use to uh, listeners. Um, Barry, so so just you know, taking a step back and looking uh, at the uh, viability of, of growth in the American economy, that's one of the most important things for business people here, particularly if they're, if they're producing in southern China and even selling services into the mainland economy and the and the U.S. economy is um, obviously of paramount importance. Um, the consumer sentiment rising and the retail sales better than expected. It seems like on balance, um, things are definitely improving. Yeah, I think that's true, Brian. I think that um, the, the confidence, the, the retail sales, the auto sector, uh, the fact that uh, people are uh, beginning to buy more, these are very positive signs. And let's not forget this incredible stock market and culminating this week with this listing of the IPO by Alibaba. You know, to, to pick up that previous theme of the integration of China into the world economy, this is it. This embodies that reality. So I think on balance, the U.S. economy looks like it can grow at a two to half, three and a half percent pace for the rest of the year. And heaven knows the world economy needs that. Okay, Barry, we'll have to close it up there and put a big pretty ribbon on this one, a blue ribbon for sure. Thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. And it's been my great pleasure chatting with you. <laughs> over these 15 years.
briefly, markets are a little bit lower this morning. Australia and Seoul both down. And if we look at the weather briefly before we go, we've got that standby signal number one up. So the tropical cyclone is now centered within 800 kilometers from us. The weather forecast is basically looking for inclement weather and uh, temperatures around 31 or 32. The news with Samantha Butler. Legislator Dr. Kwok Kaki says the government's decision to ban the import and supply of all lard and food products manufactured by a Taiwanese company at the centre of a gutter oil scandal has come too late. Yesterday, the government named 300 businesses here, mostly bakeries, that may have used lard oil from Changguan, which is accused of mixing lard with recycled oil and branding it edible. Dr. Kwok is a member of LegCo's panel on food safety and environmental hygiene and spoke to RTHK this morning. If we do not have any regulations on the export as well as the import of all the oils, particularly the pig oils, this kind of scandal may come again and again. In fact, it's nothing new to us. Two years ago, the media has already uncovered the signing of the Qatar oil in Yunnan. At that very moment, the public and the electrical has already asked the government to reveal and look into ways into how to regulate the import we export and perhaps the production of this cutter uh, oil in Hong Kong. But two years has passed, and we do not see any real measures or any steps. The observatory says it may consider issuing the strong wind signal